millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, this is Zach Twomley, B-A-M-A, here on the award-winning podcast, When Diplomacy Fails. No, I'm just kidding. Um, thanks for joining us again for another installment of Britain Goes to War, and I hope you're enjoying it. This is just a short message to tell you all thanks very much for your well wishes for my recent graduation last Monday. I couldn't insert this in the episode last Monday because it would have seemed kind of futuristic or weird or something, so I'm saying it now. It really means a lot to me to know that I have so many fans and so many people that care about me and care for my future and my success and my general enjoyment in life, so thanks very much. I'd also like to say a small quick word about the Agora Podcast Network. I see a few people have started to like that Facebook page, which I have also been roped into managing, so if you'd like to search Agora Podcast Network in Facebook, then you'll find the Facebook page. Keep on looking for the feed as well. I'm not sure exactly when it goes live, even though I've probably been told this already. Search for Agora Podcast intermittently over the next few days or so and it sh- something should come up if not let me know or let us know on the page okay i think that's all i have to say so let's just get right into it the following episode looks at a good bit of irish information so i hope that doesn't scare you away and yeah let's uh let's go for it i will now take you to the year 1873 When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 9. Benjamin Disraeli had been through a terrible trauma by the time 1873 dawned. His private life had disintegrated owing to the death of his beloved wife Mary Ann after she lost her battle with cancer. Though her death had long been anticipated, its coming was no easier to take because of this. Many of Disraeli's peers and friends believed that this was the end for him, that though they had made remarkable progress, battering William Gladstone's liberal government, the leader of the Conservative Party was now destined for retirement and a life of solemn contemplation. 
It is hard to blame them for thinking in this way, but anyone that understands or has experienced such grief themselves will understand the decisions that Disraeli actually took. Appreciating that being idle was most damaging for him, Disraeli elected to return to political life in the new season of 1873 with a vengeance. He would pour himself into his work. He would endeavour to end the political hegemony that the Liberals had for so long enjoyed. He would be the man to achieve the first Conservative majority since 1841. Or so he hoped. If Disraeli wanted to succeed, he first had to contend that Gladstone had got the better of him in virtually every previous election they had contested, and that the Liberals possessed the advantages of riding a tide of popular enthusiasm for reform as well as disdain for the old ways. Once he accepted these facts, that the old conservative ways were not going to endear his party to the people, he would then be able to focus on modernising his party and bringing his profile up to the point where Disraeli, while not exactly being the people's Benjamin, could still be hailed as a champion of at least the country, if not its populace. Firmly at work in the background of Disraeli's attempts to claw back conservative credibility was the huge PR work involved in presenting the conservatives as the patriotic party determined to restore British prestige and make Britain matter in the world again. This we have seen in the incredible speech Dizzy had made in Manchester on Easter Monday 1872. This had represented a turning point in the fortunes of the Conservative Party because its leader had connected with the people on a personal level like never before. From here, the Conservatives looked to close the gap between themselves and the Liberals by contesting by-elections and regularly capitalising on the differences in opinion within the Liberal camp, which began to appear with a troubling frequency for Gladstone. On the surface, the gradual decline of liberalism can be seen in the creeping loss of by-elections to the Conservatives, which we touched on last time. Just to clarify, a by-election, also called a special election in the US, occurs when the seat taken by a politician or representative becomes vacated and a replacement has to be elected to fill his place. This happened during our time frame for a number of reasons. Seats were vacated from death, retirement or elevation to the House of Lords. Over 150 by-elections took place between late 1868 and early 1874, or the entire tenure of Gladstone's Liberal government. Within these by-elections, numerous Conservative victories occurred, as did Liberal losses and gains. These did not mean that the party was on a downward spiral necessarily, but they did mean that Gladstone's hold on power was not secure, despite his majority. We should look at the loss in by-elections as a trend or symbol of, rather than a cause of, the Liberal decline. The true reasons for the slump have much to do with the actual party system itself. When I have said Liberal Party in the past, it is possible that this may have given you the impression that I meant party in the sense of today's meaning of the term. That the party whip would be adhered to, that the party's leader would always enjoy loyal support, and that all of its members would vote and behave cooperatively and coherently. If this is your image of what a 19th century political party looked like, then I'm afraid I have misled you. Accepting the fact that the Liberal Party was a conglomeration of different interests, views, opinions, beliefs, concerns and individuals that worked on occasion is something I have mentioned before, but during Gladstone's majority this time is the time when the flaws in this system really become apparent. Agatha Ram, in her article, The Parliamentary Context of Cabinet Government, 1868-1874, to 1874, 
effectively summarise the differences between our political parties of today and those of old. Quote, In this period, there was no party programme, formal membership, organisation, machine, or permanent fund. None of these things, which the word party nowadays implies. End quote. The reason why this becomes important is twofold. First, Gladstone had spent much of 1869, 70 and 71 pushing through reforms, not all of which, especially the Irish ones, were particularly popular among his peers. Secondly, because of the precedents set by the Abdullamites, and because of the contentious nature of the reforms for many in the party, individual preferences and principles overcame the idea that the party had to stick together. Not even Gladstone could maintain an effective hold on his party. He consistently struggled to persuade members of cabinet and MPs to turn up to the Commons and defend government policy or vote in favour of liberal motions. This absentia resulted in a number of defeats as the Liberal Party's contingent parts began to splinter in many different directions. Gladstone pleaded with a number of his peers to actually attend Parliament and thereby ensure the passing of bills and the maintenance of his party's hold on power, but he received limp replies claiming that they believed the government was safe either way or that, because of the interests of their constituents, they couldn't be seen to support Gladstone on a certain strand of policy. Did this mean that Liberal MPs were slowly abandoning Gladstone? Yes and no. In a sense, the fact that many seemed to be abandoning ship and drifting into the Conservative orbit reflected the fact that the important issues of the day, like patriotism, imperialism, morality, religion, Ireland, the Dominions, taxation, church, army and land reform, all had the tendency to divide opinion. Gladstone could never make everyone happy, and largely he didn't expect to, but such grim results do not necessarily mean that his party was fragmenting at its roots. As Agatha Ram noted, quote, The starting point of disorder was that members were not, in general, in the House primarily to play the party game on either the Liberal or Conservative side, to support Gladstone or Disraeli, or even individual pieces of government legislation. They were there as individual legislators, with constituencies to watch. End quote. By default, MPs were there for the people that had voted them in, so perhaps, if a trend in failing to support Gladstone was emerging within the Liberal ranks, this could be put down to the MPs' need to please their constituents. If we take this further, we could argue that the increasing instances where MPs pleaded this excuse shows that Gladstone was becoming less in tune with what the voters in those constituencies, and therefore great segments of the population, actually wanted. This, as you'll remember from the last episode, would have stuck in Gladstone's craw, since he prided himself on keeping an ear up to the door of public opinion, with a view towards vacating office or increasing his party's legitimacy through a snap election as the solutions. But even in Gladstone's case, he was not willing to torpedo his own government without probable cause. It would take something bigger to signify to Gladstone that not only had he lost the confidence of the people, but he had also lost the confidence of his own MPs in his own party. In a world where allegiances seemed to change with the wind, Gladstone was becoming increasingly wary of the fact that his hold on his peers was loosening, and that many liberals within the party who claimed to be independents, radicals, liberal imperialists, liberal conservatives, or still others, varied from identifying with him openly to opposing him openly in Parliament. At the same time, though, despite the by-election losses and damages done from defections, 
Gladstone could still point to a Liberal majority in the Commons of over 80 by the end of 1872. What this meant was that, on paper, Gladstone was still riding as high as he had done in late 1868 when he won his first majority. Yet to explain Gladstone's further losses and, spoiler, Disraeli's later victory at the polls, we of course had to dig a little deeper than the paper surface. An important thing to reiterate is the fact that opposition to a party leader was commonplace to a degree in the politics of the 19th century. In a world without a party whip or effective underlying administration in place to coordinate itself, opposing one's leader did not necessarily mean opposing one's party. MPs liked to believe that they possessed a certain level of independence, especially in the Liberal case once the Reform Act of 1867 had been passed. This persuaded a great number of Liberals that they now had greater responsibility to represent the people by proposing a whole new rake of reforms, adjustments, amendments, motions and debates aimed at steering Parliament towards their own chosen course. These MPs certainly felt that they were within their rights to pose such legislation, but it came at the expense of efficiency because the British political system simply could not handle it. It slowed the whole process to a crawl and led to late nights in the Commons and Lords, bitter feuds and disappointments for members on all sides of the Liberal spectrum. Because a bill could not be carried over from the last section but had to be reintroduced and debated anew even if were the next day, you can imagine the frustration. Above all, it seemed as though this new legislative congestion, which the Reform Act had helped bring about, was wearing out the Liberal aura of reformist zeal mainly because it was wearing out those MPs who believed in change but continued to be stonewalled. Stonewalled MPs, or frustrated private members with certain vested interests, tended to band together for strength, creating problem children of the Liberal Party in the process, since they would remain at loggerheads with Gladstone so long as their demands were not met. But their demands could not be met because the system Parliament had culminated in by the 1870s simply couldn't deal with their problems effectively. All of this, hopefully, will lead you to realise that Gladstone's government was nowhere near as rosy an experience as it should have been. It should help to emphasise yet again that the Liberal Party was simply too big and too multifaceted to actually work properly once the aforementioned hiccups were encountered. Gladstone increasingly came to realise that he was not the man Lord Palmerston had been. He could not, in other words, hold his party together by force of personality alone. But Gladstone would have been well within his rights to argue that he was dealing and had dealt with far more complex issues than Palmerston ever went near. It was no wonder that the taboo of breaking party rank had been done during Gladstone's time and not Palmerston's. We saw this before with the Abdullamites. Sure, it was messy, but the convictions of men changed and increased with time and issue, and unlike today where the party line must be towed, causing individuals with different principles to leave, back in Gladstone's day they simply stayed put and made everything more complicated since, as they saw it, they remained liberals and still belonged to that party. It was up to those MPs that disagreed with Gladstone to decide for themselves what the Liberal Party actually meant to them, or whether their idea of it would be so at odds with Gladstone's that they would feel compelled to actively do something about it. It would be a few more years before the varied strands of dissension within the party would actually cause it to fragment and create a brand new political grouping separate from that of Gladstone's. But when that time did come, it would be over the exact same issue which was proving so troubling for Gladstone in 1873. Ireland
Gladstone had hoped that by improving Irish conditions on the ground, be it through land reform or through the disestablishment of the Church of England, he would ingratiate himself towards the Irish MPs and the Irish themselves and preempt any nationalistic tides which threatened to bring Ireland further away from London and closer to the alignment with the increasingly politicised priests and home rule movement. Gladstone had, in effect, gambled that appeasing the Irish in 1869 and 70 with the aforementioned bills would encourage a feeling of togetherness among the British Empire's contingent parts and not encourage feelings of dissent. He had been proven wrong by 1872, yet he continued nonetheless to try to push reforms which would create an Irish university system aimed at forging an Irish aristocracy natively born but loyal to Britain, while at the same time he also opposed the idea of a royal residence in Ireland, which set him at odds with the monarchy and some within his own party, but they also gave Disraeli a convenient and relatively easy opportunity to begin his first real attack on his rival in a year. Gladstone's next step into the Irish abyss would be his most challenging one yet, but Disraeli must have expected that Gladstone would try, since he surely remembered when Gladstone had spoken passionately about his government's purpose in 1870. The government has taken office for a variety of purposes connected with the profession of what is called the liberal creed of politics, but the first of these purposes was and is to find a solution to the Irish question, meaning thereby the great question of which the three branches are, the Irish church, the Irish land and the Irish education questions, this latter including especially the subject of higher education in that country. The next part of this episode is unfortunately a bit thick with info, so I'll try to keep it simple. When I was writing it, I spent at least a day grappling with what it all really meant, what was denominational, non-denominational, education or an Irish university bill, why were these issues so important across Britain and Ireland, when in many ways they contradicted each other. For example, Irish people wanted their colleges to be free from a Protestant influence, so why, when Gladstone went about trying to do this, did so many Irish MPs vote against his bill? Similarly, Liberals were supposed to approve of making education a more free and inclusive experience for all. So why, when the most uninclusive and unequal education system of all, the Irish one, was due to be changed, did so many cry foul? These are the questions that I tried to answer myself. Then I got so tangled up in the theory and rhetoric and history of Irish universities that I constantly rewrote like half of the script in frustration. I needed a clear, simple definition that I could use to explain what was going on, to myself as much as you guys. I found it, after trawling through my reading list for the Golden Age, in an article called Religion and the Collapse of Gladstone's First Government, 1870-74, to by a Cambridge professor named John Parry, who's also actually quite a nice guy. Parry noted on the whole system of education across the British Isles, quote, Nearly all existing schools, whether completely voluntary or in receipt of the supplementary government grants that had been available since the 1830s, had been founded by churches or societies with religious affiliations. It was now accepted, even by most of the dissenters previously hostile to state aid, that this system had not infiltrated the worst areas of educational and moral deprivation. But if the state was to begin to superintend a rational system of education, it was not clear how the existing schools of the various denominations were to be financed, without upsetting those members of other sects forced to contribute to their upkeep out of the rates. 
Most churchmen and conservatives still demanded special favours for denominational schools, but liberals usually attacked this position and tended to advocate one of two opposed solutions. The first would charge the state only with establishing an efficient secular education in all districts, allowing the various sects complete liberty to teach definite religious doctrine on a voluntary basis. The second proposed to uphold the state's religious conscience and to try to diffuse strife between the sects by enforcing in all rate-aided schools a morally beneficial common or non-denominational Christianity. End quote. Reactions to the increase in scientific discovery and liberal dislike of the Catholic Church, culminating in the 1870 Papal Council's declaration of papal infallibility where matters of theory or God were concerned, created further schisms in the 1860s and 70s. This created an awkward situation for Ireland too, where Gladstone continued to focus his gaze. As Parry notes, it was not a morass of issues which any sensible politician would consider tackling lightly. Quote, the bogey of Catholicism also affected discussion on Ireland. In 1868, Gladstone's incoming government was pledged, in the cause of religious equality, not only to disestablish the Irish Church, but to remove Catholic grievances of inequality of opportunity in higher education. Trinity College Dublin had originally been intended to form only one part of a collegiate Dublin University. Consequently, its combined university and college structure was extremely well endowed. But, although liberal, Trinity was Protestant and maintained religious tests for fellowships and scholarships. The Queen's colleges at Cork, Galway and Belfast had been set up by Sir Robert Peel in 1845 with state aid to give secular education to Protestants and Catholics together. However, the Catholic bishops had discouraged lay attendance there, maintaining that any teaching artificially divorced from religion was immoral. The voluntary denominational Catholic University at St. Stephen's Green, Dublin, was poor and could obviously not compete with the others, but an influential element in British opinion was against the endowment with state money of a Catholic institution. It was not clear how this conundrum was to be resolved. End quote. I know long quotes aren't really the best policy, but in a situation like this I believe they are warranted. You don't really hate me enough to force me to explain all of this myself, do you? Despite how ugly the whole thing looked, and despite the fact that Gladstone had already passed land and church reforms in Ireland by 1873, Irish education remained. Essentially, Gladstone's bill would centralise the entire Irish education system under a University of Dublin model, which would be expanded to include all of Ireland's existing universities across the island. The University of Dublin had originally been meant to look something like Cambridge or Oxford's model, which in case you weren't aware consists of the collegial system composed of colleges you've probably heard of like King's College, Christ's College, Trinity College, St John's College, Clare Hall College and loads of others. However, with the Dublin case they never really went further than Trinity College, and now they wanted to change that by grouping colleges in Cork, Galway and Belfast into its umbrella, with the aim that, one day I suppose, Queen's College Belfast, University of Dublin, would have the same prestige or ring to it as King's College, University of Cambridge. Confused? What you really need to know is that Gladstone wanted to centralise and copy the existing models in the United Kingdom of prestigious universities, and he wanted to do so without placing any religious burdens on these institutions. 
Gladstone wanted to reimagine Ireland's collegial system as a secularised new system of colleges, under the University of Ireland moniker, to ensure that all Irish people, regardless of faith, would be allowed equal access and equal treatment. This would displease the Conservatives and some more reserved members of the Liberal Party, who wouldn't like the influence of Trinity College in Dublin to become diluted, or for its old traditions or history to be dispersed. As per the bill, Trinity College Dublin's theological department would be transplanted to the Dublin branch of the Anglican Church of Ireland, apparently severing Trinity College from its religious base forever. Yet it would simultaneously please some within Gladstone's party because it represented a change and a trend towards non-denominal education in Ireland, which was in line with liberal principles which many of Gladstone's colleagues espoused. At the same time, in the Irish case, it would displease many Irish Catholics who wanted denominational education in Ireland's universities to be run by Irish priests. At the same, same time, it would make some in Ireland happy because it would look as though Gladstone was going down the right path towards equality of opportunity for all. These were the four pillars which Gladstone found himself surrounded by, but it is worth noting that those happy with non-denominational education constituted the smallest pillars. In other words, Gladstone's key audience and beneficiaries made up the minority. His bill seemed to make more people unhappy than it would make happy, which in itself was bad politics. But there was another more sinister undercurrent which Gladstone really should have been more aware of. The fact was, he had already given the Irish reforms in land and church, but this had created a few tangible results and seemed to empower Irish dissidents who were branded ungrateful by those in Gladstone's own party. That Gladstone therefore tried anyway to push the Irish education bill at all when we consider its explosive potential and lack of support seems incredible, but it is a further illustration of what he was really made of. He would rather see his party break altogether than for him to have to bend on his principles, and Ireland had been his mission since his taking of office in late 1868. One of Gladstone's peers, Evelyn Ashley, a barrister and Liberal MP, noted the following on the 1st of December, 1868. I was standing by Mr. Gladstone, holding his coat on my arm, while he, in his shirt sleeves, was wielding an axe to cut down a tree. Up came a telegraph messenger. He took the telegram, opened it, and read it, and then handed it to me, speaking only two words, namely, very significant, and at once resumed his work. The message merely stated that General Grey would arrive that evening from Windsor, This, of course, implied that a mandate was coming from the Queen, charging Mr. Gladstone with the formation of his first government. I said nothing, but waited while the well-directed blows resounded. After a few minutes, the blows ceased, and Mr. Gladstone, resting on the handle of his axe, looked up, and with deep earnestness in his voice and a great intensity in his face, exclaimed, My mission is to pacify Ireland. He then resumed his task, and never said another word till the tree was down. This witness from the beginning of his term in office should illustrate just how important the issue was for Gladstone. His colleagues well knew the importance of it. Many of them had begun to fall away from his line of thinking before the bill was put to a vote, including his ministers for foreign affairs and for the colonies. Gladstone, it seemed, had finally become too radical for even his own cabinet to bear. And though there did certainly exist a trend of sympathy for Ireland within the Liberal Party, as we saw that same party contained so many offshoots of opinion regarding how to best apply this sympathy, 
a great portion of liberal opinion believed he had gone too far. It was a situation which mirrored that of the Abdullamites of before. This time they did not profess any name or common strategy. They simply elected to ignore Gladstone's pleas and vote against their leader's bill when it was put to the House of Commons in March 1873. The eventual count was 284 votes for and 287 against. A really small margin of defeat when you think about it, but when you consider that 48 Liberal MPs voted against it while 10 abstained and a further number were absent, the problem Gladstone was facing becomes a little more clear. It is worth mentioning that 38 of those 48 Liberal MPs were Irish They were so unconvinced by Gladstone's non-denominational tone that they rejected out of hand what he was trying to do. This should reflect the emerging trend in Ireland of the politicising effects which movements like the Home Rule League and a resurgent Catholicism were having on the Irish populace. Reforms such as the piecemeal style Gladstone promised were not enough for some of the Irish anymore. Some Protestants had despised the land and church reforms, while some Catholics lamented the university bill, which would take the opportunity to have denominational, Catholicised education away from them. Either way, both segments were able, for a time at least, to cooperate and oppose Gladstone on the basis that he was making neither of them happy, and so self-government was preferable. This explains why a great portion of the Home Rule League's membership was made up of Protestants, they felt that they could better serve their interests and ensure their position with a Dublin Parliament that they could control, rather than a London House of Commons that they could not move. As a sort of side note, it is worth examining the Home Rule League for a bit, since Gladstone was actually in favour of such a movement and saw its value, provided it was done sensibly of course. In November 1873, the Home Rule League met to establish their principles and plans for the future, which involved cooperating with MPs that agreed with their position and defining exactly what they meant by home rule. Home rule effectively meant that Ireland would be governed from Dublin, not the House of Commons or Westminster or London, but that Ireland would possess rights over its local affairs only. Ireland would still remain within the Empire as a loyal participant and it would continue to place the control of its foreign affairs, security and the navy in London's hands. Perhaps having learned from the experience of the Reform Bill in 1867, the Irish that attended the meeting of November 1873 understood the importance of having politicians in London on side. You could be a movement of immense importance and significance, whom the public could identify with, but until MPs actually identified with you, as some radical liberals, during the Reform agitations of 1865, 66 and 67 did, your movement or idea could not have proper sway to make change happen. Catholic members of the League had felt suppressed by the creeping and eventual failure of Gladstone's Irish Education Bill, and mobilised to do something to change that, as John Parry notes. Quote, The unmistakable evidence that, under this type of pressure, no Liberal government would cede control over endowed denominational education to Ireland was a major reason for the creation and swift growth of a formidable constitutional home rule movement. One of the main planks of its early campaigns was that Irish Protestants and Catholics both demanded their own denominational institutions, rather than some compromise designed to satisfy an English conscience. End quote. Irish Protestants, while not feeling too upbeat about the notion of denominational education run by Irish priests, 
saw at the same time their own influence and interests wane with the passing of the disestablishment and land reform bills. But with Trinity College Dublin apparently on the cards for a dramatic change in its inherent Protestant makeup as well, it is little wonder why they cooperated for the time being. Further realizations about the need to capitalize upon the political feeling of the country and approach a number of MPs about the league's position would eventually lead the Home Rule League to become not just a movement but an actual political party in the House of Commons, a third wheel to upset the liberal and conservative status quo which had for so long reigned. The Irish, it seemed, were not going away any time soon, and we'll be hearing much more from the Home Rulers in the future. By all accounts, Gladstone was a broken man once his Irish education bill failed. He took it deeply personally, and saw within it a sign that his government had lost the confidence of the House of Commons, the Lords and the Electorate. He resigned on the 13th of March 1873, only a few days after his Irish bill had been rejected. As he did so, he denounced a malignant combination of Romanism and Toryism. The realities were far more complex as we have seen, and involved a downward trend in liberalism, just as conservatism was on the rise alongside Irish political ambitions. Gladstone had tried to fix the situation as best as he knew how, but it was no use. There is now no cause, he wrote shortly after resigning, no great public object on which the Liberal Party are agreed and combined. He was right. Having lost the vote and with his bill rejected, schisms within the governing cabinet now emerged over a whole manner of issues, from the troublesome Irish issue to foreign policy to defence to questions of economy to landed issues. Gladstone seemed to have lost control altogether, and he lamented bitterly to one of his cabinet members, now in limbo as all decided their next move, You give no heed to the wailings and pleas of my old age, but I do, and the future in politics hardly exists for me unless some new phase arise, and, as in 1868, a special call may appear. To such call, please God, I shall answer, if there be a breath in my body. Gladstone, then, had resigned, with the view that he would receive a rest from office, a longer one this time, before planning a return if such a thing proved viable. He remained attached to his Irish plans, but he failed to consider one of the aspects of his own plan. He had assumed that Disraeli, still building his party back up after years in opposition, would accept his rival's resignation and agree to form a minority government once again. He would have had good reason to suspect Disraeli would have followed such a line, since Disraeli had only ever formed minority conservative governments in the past, mostly due to the fact that he and his predecessors had had no choice with the Liberal monopoly on seats. Disraeli would take power, attempt to exploit the Liberal differences over Ireland and perhaps fail again, would spark another election and give Gladstone's Liberals the opportunity to recoup his losses. But Disraeli wouldn't do it. He wouldn't take the bait. He informed both Queen Victoria and Gladstone's messengers that he would be unable to form a new government, and thus the impetus fell back to Gladstone, who, one could argue, did not have to resign, and had only done so out of personal conviction. What followed was a somewhat amusing game of hot potato that Gladstone hadn't expected. Disraeli did not want a minority government, but Gladstone was worn out from years in office and didn't want the helm back. Queen Victoria on the sidelines, meanwhile, blamed Gladstone for causing the difficulty, while she also confessed that Disraeli would have little choice if the issue continued for much longer. In the end, Gladstone blinked first. He took back the reins of power on the 17th of March, only four days after resigning. 
His plans for recouping his losses and saving political face had failed. With Disraeli refusing to budge, awaiting instead the moment of the government's utter collapse, Gladstone had been forced to oblige. His Liberal government lumbered on virtually paralysed in Cabinet and in Parliament for the next few months. Though religious tests for entering into Oxbridge were abolished, that was about the only practical advance made on the education issue. The scab that Gladstone had picked off had become a festering wound which nobody would touch with a barge pole. Seeing his support fade, Gladstone appreciated that he would have to call a snap election, whereupon the true remains of his party could be measured and the pieces picked back up. He relied on the improvement of voting rights among the working classes to see him through, and he even believed that Disraeli would fail to take up the challenge, which would have opened up a whole new rake of political obstacles and made Disraeli's conservatives look very weak-chinned. In the event, when Gladstone did dissolve Parliament in late January 1874, he was greeted not with resignation from Disraeli, but defiance. Disraeli had worked very hard over 1873 to build his party up from the ground, where it had been following years of depressing opposition and minority experiences. Revamping his organisational models and rebranding the party as one of the patriotic class, and as conservatism, as the choice of the Britain in tune with his own national values and principles, Disraeli achieved a public relations coup that had been slowly burning for over a year. When the results came in early February... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Glasden had to admit defeat. And the fruits of Disraeli's labours were rewarded by the first conservative majority government since 1841. Now on top of the world, having recreated the party, set it on the right path and brought it to triumph, Disraeli had to begin the task he'd always looked to with such immense relish, ruling Great Britain as the Prime Minister of a majority Conservative government. As Gladstone accepted the position of opposition leader for two more terms until his impending retirement, Disraeli must have been on cloud nine. His rival was vanquished and his ultimate goal in life had been achieved. Now it remained to be seen what this Jewish, self-made aristocratic refugee could do with the power at his fingertips and the reins in his hands. 
it was to be a tenure in office that Britain and the whole world would not soon forget. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 